Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight? Or today, sir? Oh, I'm I'm doing great. I'm just really confused about what time it is. I don't know if it's day or night. I'm ugh, I, I can't handle this. But maybe you should stop drinking. No. Nope. I, I learned from the best, and he is encouraging me to continue with perseverance and diligence. Well, no one likes a quitter. No one likes a quitter. Well, this episode of Table Topics will be number 80, Fantasy Ground Review with Mundangerous. And for this episode, we have brought along not one, but two special guests. So first, the aforementioned, <laughs> the aforementioned Mundangerous, also known as Shane. Shane, say hello to everyone. Hey, guys. It's Shane. And uh, Shane, you have your own blog website where you do some writing as Mundangerous. And where would that be located if people want to check it out? Yeah, so I write um, at my website, mundangerous.com, M-U-N-Dangerous.com. And I also write for the Mad Adventures Society at uh, madadventures.com. And what does Mundangerous mean? Like, where does that name come from? So it's a, uh, it's a portmanteau between mundane and dangerous. And I don't know, it was something from TV Tropes that uh, kind of stuck with me. Um, if you think of like a Caltrop, that's the perfect Mundangerous item. It, uh, you know, it seems like it would just be like a piece of like twisted iron. Uh, but when you put it on the ground and ask horses to trample over it, it causes all types of problems. Also deforce. Exactly. In your basement when you're barefoot. Okay, and our second special guest for this episode is friend of the show, Matthew Parody. You know him, you love him. Yay! Matthew, unmute yourself and say hello. Ah, you took it away from me. I was going to say, I'm unmuted. <laughs> Dick. Friend of the show, I thought I was an employee. What the hell? <laughs> Caleb, what is going on over there? No one gets paid. You said uh, something I'm... about union rights. I, I'm sorry, I was voted out at the last meeting. I'm no longer the union president. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I think Scott took over. Who? That guy that we never hear from anymore. That guy. Once, I like that once, guy. once he got the union position, man, he just whew, took over. Are you money. trying to say that there's corruption in our union system? For shame, sir. For shame. I, I'm not not saying it. <laughs> As a like lover of unions, I would like to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's get back to reality. Matthew, say hello to everyone. Hello. Oh, that wasn't reality? That was podcast gold. No, it'll all really be cut was. out. Damn it. Okay, so the uh, sort of the meat of this episode today is uh, Shane and I had the opportunity to play in a uh, like a trial version of Fantasy Grounds. Not, not really a trial version. It was a trial to me because I don't own the program, so I got to play in it uh, one time to try out the new relationship uh, package they have with Wizards of the Coast, where you can actually have the downloaded official rules for D&D 5th Edition that are fully integrated into the Fantasy Grounds virtual tabletop. And uh, we had a chance to play that, and we're going to discuss kind of our response and our reactions to that. But before we get into that, we always want to take a step back and talk about why we're here. So Caleb and I, and today, Matthew and Shane, like to use these table topics to sort of give some advice and share some opinions uh, that we have gleaned from the many years we've played tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the advice we give and the opinions we share may not be applicable at every table, every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. 
That is correct, sir. That is our motto here at the RPG Academy, that no matter what game you're playing, what system or edition, or what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, then you're playing the game correctly. So with that out of the way, we're going to move into our announcement section. Surprise, surprise, we're going to talk a little bit about a catacon. Sorry, guys, I can't stop him. He's a boulder rolling downhill. I'm, I'm going to get killed if, if I get in the way. That's right. It's best just to stay, stand clear and just let this boulder continue to roll. So there's not a whole lot of new information to share this week, so hopefully this will be fairly short from me. Uh, but there are two, two big things that we want to talk about. One, uh, we're moving the date up about a month. So Caleb being the voice of, of reason the that Kickstarter, he... Of uh, the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter. Correct. The, the Kickstarter. See, I even have gonna... to step in with this. Come on. <laughs> Let's have a little bit of professionalism, sir. Why start now? So the Kickstarter is going to start about a month earlier than originally uh, talked about. Uh, so now we're looking at probably August 6th. Uh, the reason for that, we were a little concerned that we would not have time once the Kickstarter ended, assuming that we fund, to turn around and spend that money and basically acquire all the supplies and organize everything that we need to get organized. So we wanted to have a little bit of extra time. Our original concern is that we didn't want the Kickstarter to be too close to Gen Con as I'm sure a lot of the, our potential audience will be uh, poor during that time frame. Uh, but as Caleb mentioned, basically we start in August. We're still not going to close until the end of August, early September. So there's still going to be some time in between when that money will actually come out of someone's account if they do pledge. Uh, it also get, makes a lot more sense for us to have that money uh, early enough to turn around and get the supplies that we need. So look at probably August 6th is now going to be our new start day. And uh, one of our larger stretch goals is to have Matthew and his uh, improv comedy troupe to come down and put on an improv show. And so we wanted to bring Matt on and talk a little bit about like what that would look like. And I want you to sell it, Matt, because we need people to donate at a level that makes that happen. So right now is your chance. You're on stage. Sell it. Sell it to us. Okay. First off, does everybody know what improv is? No. Okay, I'm going to tell you, improv is when a bunch of people get up on stage, they can consider themselves actors, they get on stage and they put on some make ups and make ups are basically, we say, we're going to do this, we need something from you. Hey, give me uh, your favorite place to be. Starbucks. Okay, this scene's going to take place in a Starbucks and we make a scene. So that's improv. Basically what, as long as there's a space, if there is a floor with some chairs around it, I could put on an improv show. I do it at a crepe restaurant. I do it on a stage. I've done it on a little uh, step in an outdoor eatery in the Hamptons. I've done it on a grass field. So I could put on an improv show anywhere. So as long as there's a space and a time frame, I could put on an improv show. Basically, that's it. And and the RPG theme, that's up to you guys. Like, if you guys go... The Sword of a Thousand Truths. Then we'll do it on the Sword of a Thousand Truths. Now, for anyone who has a little bit of knowledge, uh, Matt's actually talking about uh, some short form improv games. Yes. So that's what I'm. It's a lot of quick games back and forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you watched Whose Line Is It Anyway, you know exactly what this is. Yes. Uh, Matthew does full contact improv. Oh, he yes. actually has sustained a injury from uh, he improved so hard that he broke his leg. Yes, I fractured my foot doing improv. It was uh, it was pretty awesome. But he completed the show. God damn it. He I stayed did. on stage I and completed complete the, the show. show. Uh, if you'd like to see that, 
it's not online yet, but I'll put it online now that I'm talking about it on the internet. But uh, if you'd like to see any of that, you could just uh, go to YouTube and look up Matt Perotti. And uh, anything you find on there is going to be my improv stuff. Or you can look up IPA Comedy, which is my improv troupe, my personal improv troupe. Also, I do comedy with Friday Night Face-Off, which performs out of Theater 3 in Port Jefferson, New York. So anyone who wants to see that, it's on Friday night, obviously. That, that's good I have seen the incident in question, and it is quite magnificent. <laughs> it involves the Carlton dance? Yes, it does. How much do I have to back the uh, Kickstarter to get Matt to redo that? <laughs> God, how much were the bills? Hang on. Let me tell you like this. <laughs> My insurance sucks, so... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. In general, because it is my job to sum everything up here, uh, what we are talking about is at one of our highest tier stretch goals of our Catacon Kickstarter will be the cost it, it takes to get Matthew and his improv troupe down to a Catacon. Uh, so he would be bringing with him a bunch of seasoned comedians and performers. We will schedule an improv show. We don't have the exact schedule set as of this moment, but we will do our best if this does happen to work games around it so that people will not be having to make that insanely difficult Sophie's choice between a regular boring old role-playing game and a really, really awesome improv show. You just came up with the correct title for this episode, Sophie's Choice. (laughs) Yet another title, add it to the list. But yeah, this this is a really cool thing. I'm really thankful for Matthew uh, to agreeing to this as a stretch goal. Uh, when you guys check out the Kickstarter later this year, uh, this is something that I think you will all be very pleased with. And I personally really want to see happen because uh, I need some bro time with Matthew. And this might be the only way we get him down. And we do have a designated space for it to occur. There is a... Um a dance floor that is not part of the convention center itself. So it's like a 12 foot by 12 foot tiled area with chairs all around it. It would be perfect for this to happen. So hopefully we will get there and uh, that's all dependent on you guys. Uh, obviously we're going to be selling tickets to a catacon. Uh, we're still working out the pricing, but we're probably looking 30, 35 bucks a ticket. If we sell out every ticket that will allow us to put on the show, but it will not allow us to get to the point where we can do some of our stretch goals. So we are going to need some people that are just want to help us out and see us succeed and give us some donations. And this is one of our top tier stretch goals is to get Matthew uh, and some of his buddies down to do a show. But that is for later. We want to go ahead and move on today and get into our show. The first thing we're going to talk about, though, is a question that came up through our Twitter feed about keeping player knowledge and character knowledge separate. Now, we've touched on this recently in talking about secrets And I'm a big fan of character secrets being public knowledge. If I'm secretly a drow, but I'm playing a half-elf and I'm using some sort of makeup or magic item to conceal my identity, I want the players at the table to know that because I want it to be something that matters in the game. If I have a secret that is never revealed the entire time I play, then I might as well not have even had that secret because it really doesn't add anything interesting or dramatic to to the story. And I feel like all the players and the DM are writers on like a show. They all need to know what's going on if they're going to properly write the story. This is a little different. The, the situation that 
that spurred this conversation was a situation where one player tried to do something that failed and the other player knew that it was attempted and had their character react because they knew that something had happened. In this case, I believe it was specifically it was a spell that was cast, uh, like a charm person or something. Actually, that's a bad example because charm person specifically says you know that it was cast. So some other sort of spell that, that should have had an effect, but because it, it failed, there was no obvious effect. But the player, knowing that the spell was cast, reacted to it in character. We got four people on the show today, so we'll try to kind of modulate the conversation a little bit more. So I'll start with Caleb, since he's on my far left here. What do you think about that in general? Have you had that situation come up in your games? And as a player or DM, how have you, hand, how have you handled that in trying to keep player knowledge separate from character knowledge in this type of situation? Okay, so yeah, I have definitely run into this uh, while running and playing games over the years. And there's not one right answer. There's simply what is correct for the moment in the at the table. I think in general, it's you can't eliminate player knowledge because you're all sitting around the table. Uh, unless you are working specifically through uh, secret notes passed back and forth to the DM, if you're playing... Uh, on a virtual tabletop and you're doing a, a private chat or you send a text to the DM secretly at any point you say, Hey, I need to do something as my character. You're saying it out loud. So everyone knows it. Uh, so you can't really eliminate player knowledge unless you are taking extreme methods to do something secretively. Now, plenty of times that does happen. Uh, there's been situations where a rogue in the party passed me a note that said, uh, I want to try to steal from the paladin. And I've passed a note back. Okay, roll this. Tell me what you get. I'll roll for him or have him secretly roll and not tell him what's going on. You know, it's messy, but there is a way to do it. Specifically, if we're talking about magic, yeah, if a player wants to cast a secret spell and not tell the other players what's happening you have to do something like a note or a text or uh, a personal private direct message on whatever social media you're using. But in general, there's no way to hide that. The question becomes whether the characters would recognize that and react to it. And I think to actually answer that question, you have to kind of dig into the metaphysical relationship of this pretend world. What does it mean to cast a spell? Typically in Dungeons and Dragons, in that type of magic system, spells have uh, verbal components and they have components of waving your hands around and doing silly things. Uh, so the question arises, do the other party members notice the wizard in the background saying crazy fake Latin things and waving his hands about? Do you always want to break that down to a perception check? Hey, the wizard says he's casting mage hand. Hey, fighter roll a perception check. Hey, the wizard says he's casting blah, blah, blah. Hey, fighter, roll a perception check. I think you have to do that on a case-by-case basis. Uh, this is something where passive perception can come into play very easily. If there is a reason why the other party members should not see this spell or should not react to it, or they should, you can just look at their passive perceptions and say, yeah, they, they probably would have seen him waving his hands about and screaming in Latin. Yeah, you saw him try to cast that spell. Uh, but again, it is really based on the situation and the context of the story and what's really happening. All right, Matthew. So we'll go to you next. Um, anything you would add to what Caleb said or any personal experiences you've had with this, either positive or negative? 
I can't remember a time other than during the 13th age game where I had a piece of like I had a nickname that I didn't want anyone to use and that got lost in the first episode. So it never came up again. But actually, um, now that I'm thinking about it in the 5e game, since I am the folk hero and like the town's best friend, Caleb has told me some things that no one else knows as the uh, as the person who would know who's missing, how many are missing, and, and whatnot to the people we're looking for in the dungeon. So yeah, I've I've had some secret text messages. I've done it. Been there. That's it. It's all got. <laughs> all right, Shane. Yeah, I think um, I think to kind of reiterate what Caleb talked about, um, a big decision point you need to make as a player, or DM, right? Is 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 this question or is this action generally? in the party's favor or working against the party. You know, if you're taking an aggressive action when the rest of the party is trying to negotiate, right, now the party, it's working against what the rest of the party is doing. And I think there should be some sort of, like, opposed check, whether that's perception, whether that's arcana. You know, it just depends on what the system is. You know, but if everyone's working towards the same objective, like in combat, I don't think there's any reason to hide from the fighter what spell the wizard cast behind him. Right. It's just not worth the effort, in my opinion. Well, I think basing off of what you said there, Shane, you also have to look at what other skills and abilities the players have brought to the table for their characters. Uh, If we look at an older version of Dungeons and Dragons, wizards and casters could take certain feats and abilities to hide their spell casting. Yeah. If the if you are playing that type of game and you are at a point where that is a factor, then it matters. Then you as a GM have to pay attention to what your players are actually doing and, uh, and what abilities they might have chosen. But you're absolutely right. It does, it does really matter what the intention of the spell is uh, as to the answer the question, whether or not it matters that other players or party members have noticed it. Yeah. And I mean, well, even in 5e, right, the sorcerer has a subtle spell, metal, metamagic, so he could hide the vocal and somatic components. Um, and there weren't, there was an edition of D&D where you could steal spells. Yeah, 3.5. So you could learn new spells by watching them cast. So, I mean, you know, it matters uh, sometimes mechanically, but I think, I think that's the key from a, how much do I want to police this at the table, right? From from my standpoint, it would it would, as not surprising go back to more of a story story answer if the other characters have said before we don't trust the wizard and we're 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 not sure what side he's on or you know we're we're paying extra attention to him for this reason or that reason then yeah it's much more likely that you would have noticed that he's casting a spell in a moment that doesn't make sense and and we're reading into a lot of this because we don't have all the details it was just a couple tweets that went past the feed so we don't have the whole situation so if, if the wizard's been doing weird things, uh, just like I'll turn over to the rogue. You know, we've probably all dealt with a situation where the rogue scouts ahead, comes back and is like, oh, yeah, I found an empty treasure chest. Weird. Okay, that's funny. Ha ha. You, you stole all the treasure. But if it keeps happening, eventually people are going to be like, I don't trust the rogue anymore. I don't want them to be by themselves. So they kind of put themselves in situations that the rogue can't just take all the loot. When that happens, the story is now built that we don't trust the rogue and we're going to put precautions in place because we think he he or she's up to something. If this was the first time the wizard's ever done something like this, I probably would just have said, 
you don't really have any reason to suspect anything happened here. No, you just don't see it. Uh, if someone really fought me, I might give them a perception check for it. But even then, I might say, well, you were in front negotiating with this guy. The wizard's behind you. You couldn't have seen it. But if it's something that's like player versus player, because, again, I'm, I don't exactly know the situation. Did one player try to cast a spell on another player? In those cases, I generally do say that you feel a sensation. You feel a tingling. There's there's something about the magical aura that affects you in a way that just doesn't sink in. So... If it's player versus player, I probably would say that you know something happened, but you may not know what, you know, even who it came from. But for me, I I would want to know, why is this even happening? Why do we have players that are trying to stop or try to read into what actions another player are doing? Because I think I'm all about pushing the story forward. I want the players working together. And this sounds like a player versus player type of thing that I'm just not a big fan of as a DM. So I would try to figure out what's, what's the root cause? What is going on? Was one player just being disruptive? Did they have information another player didn't have and they were acting on it and it makes sense? So I would probably handle this as a quick five minute aside conversation, try to figure out what exactly is the motivation of everybody and then just make a ruling and then go, go forward, say, okay, in the future, if you think the wizard's up to something, I will give you perception checks to, to try to see what he's, he or she's doing. But in this particular instance, it would just based off of everything that's happened till now on what I would say and then move forward. Any follow-up on that, Caleb? Yeah, two things about that. First off, if we really want to dig into does the fighter know that the wizard is casting a spell against him, you kind of have to answer the question, does the, sp- does the fighter know anything about magic? Because would you define it as you feel something kind of tingly or suddenly something happens and you have no idea what it means? So if you're going that route, you really kind of have to be prepared to, like I said earlier, really dig into what magic means in this pretend world. But let's think of another situation where this might actually come up and not be a player versus player thing. What if... I'm just going to make up a situation here. So what well, if the party... I've got a real situation for you if you want. Oh, sh- yeah. Go ahead, Shane. Take it. Yeah. So we were um, we were in a you know dungeon-type scenario, and we were kind of faced with a, with a Sophie's Choice where the bard in our group had lost her soul, and her soul was sitting on one end of a, of a contraption, and on the other end of the contraption were 25 children's souls. And it was pretty clear to us, right? You pick one and you lose the other. And, you know, so she needed her soul back, but she was inherently good and was torn as to, you know, this sucks. I have to go save the children. And the more neutral character in our party was like, that's insane. Let's go get your soul. And he just bolted ahead of everybody. Right. So now he's taking an action, sort of preempting the group's discussion, you know, and we had to figure out how do we resolve that? Okay. So in that type of situation, the action is pretty straightforward. Uh, this one player, this one character is taking an action. And I would say as a GM, if that player took the initiative to just start acting, I would probably give everybody a second to react. Maybe we would have to go on initiative. Maybe we do like a passive initiative or something. Uh, Maybe people would make reflex saves. And I wouldn't necessarily be a save to grab the guy, but it would be a reflex save to see if you could react fast enough to stop him. So, so that would certainly be a great example of uh, how to resolve one player doing something independently from the party or might have a huge impact on the party. Specifically going back to the magic question that was asked earlier, what if the party was in a dungeon and, 
and for some reason only the wizard had made a perception check about some goblins that were about to attack them and the wizard was casting a spell of protection on the party but that spell fails based on that failing the fighter says oh i'm now going to change my tactical position to be more advantageous against the goblins now that pl- that character didn't make his perception check so he has no knowledge of the goblins he's basing his action on what the wizard did failing this protective spell so in that situation it's not a player versus player kind of choice it's more of a the wizard is doing something beneficial but failed because of that failing the player is trying to do something further that his skill check didn't back up so in a situation like that that might be a little bit closer to the original question that was asked to us so what do we think about that shane do you have anything for that yeah i mean i think in that situation um it's just kind of it's a question of how abstract are your skill checks right is it that everyone is sitting around like listening carefully and intently for six seconds and then they get a result or is it you know the the wizard gets a passes his perception suspects there's something around the corner he kind of motions to everyone around them and now we're all working off his perception right you know if it's in the middle of combat you probably want it to be very drilled in right and if it's sort of out of combat time probably not as important usually right that makes sense uh, again it's just basically it's all based on context <laughs> that that's really what we're saying here the the context of what the intention is whether you're in a more rigid round based moment or a more fluid scene based moment kind of really what's happening yeah exactly and at the end of the day if i'm not sure what to do or i haven't set a precedent i'll probably decide what i think makes the best story in that moment is the drama of these two characters interacting potentially aggressively interesting or is it a distraction and if it's a distraction i'll probably hand wave it and say you didn't see it we'll talk about it later and move the story forward or if i think that's very interesting and there's some drama to be to be mined from that then i'm like oh yeah you definitely see he cast a spell he was he was trying to do this why you may even think he was trying to do that and I'll, I'll egg it on a little bit to see if i can get some really cool interactions going on with the players I do want to take a moment, step back though, to the the example Shane was sharing because I want to know how did the DM handle that situation? We rolled initiative. The uh, it was it was actually the monk character who's like neutral pragmatic um, who smoked us all, um, and then we got a little bit of a DM fiat. He he couldn't actually pull the mechanism. Uh, it, it had to be the bard who made the decision. So I got you. Little two-step machina action in there, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, because the thing I wanted to bring up there is is I've had that, not that exact situation, but a very similar situation where all the parties standing together, there's no immediate danger, and they're talking about, what do you want to do? And then you have that Leroy Jenkins moment where one guy just decides to say, F it, and run in and do something, whether it's tag somebody or grab something or whatever. And I mean, that happens a lot. So how do you handle that? I'm not a fan of Rowan Initiative because... You could have a player who's, you know, who's a rogue or otherwise really, really fast. And it doesn't always make sense. Like, I've got a head start. None of you knew what I was doing. I'm now running. And unless you're running 200 yards, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever for anyone to be able to stop what I'm doing. But it creates a very dramatic moment if somebody can throw a bola and trap my legs or they can shoot an arrow and knock the thing over I'm trying to do. 
So from a dramatic standpoint, I want there to be a chance, albeit a small one, that other characters will have the ability to interact or stop me because I think it, it's an interesting moment. So I really like um, Caleb's idea of doing like a reaction save. So it's not straight initiative that can just really jack things up. But in that case, if you have a high dexterity or high reaction score, then you might be able to do something that will interrupt me. So in that particular case, I do like that better than going into straight initiative. Yeah, I actually do too. Although I will argue with you slightly. Of course you will. I haven't argued with you in a long time on the show. So Your eyes. If people could see your eyes. That's why it's not a video podcast. Um, <laughs> so let's let's go back to Shane's example. Let's say the monk is dodging forward. Monks are generally pretty quick characters. But let's say the rogue actually is trying to stop him. If we just take a, a second and actually roll initiative... To me, it kind of makes sense that someone who gets a high initiative, what that means is in that moment, they are so situationally aware that they have that second to uh, make a snap judgment and try to stick a hand out and catch this guy. Now, as a GM, you might say, okay, uh, the monk, I'm going to give you a plus five bonus based on the situation, or maybe everyone else takes a negative penalty or you know, because the rogue had specifically said, I'm standing right here next to the monk, he gets a bonus, but no one else does. So I think you could work that into the story to reflect what the roles actually mean, because you don't have to use the roles to define the story. You can shape the story to react to the roles. And that can be just as good as making a great decision to determine a great story. Uh, but this is also something where a, a passive initiative could come in as well. We've talked in the past about passive perception and whether or not other skills could be considered passive. In a unique situation such as this one, a passive uh, initiative could be used to decide who reacts first. So the monk says, I'm going to run. You look at everyone's passive initiative and it just happens to be, I'm going to say the rogue again, because the rogue would obviously probably have the best initiative bonus. And you say, all right, player, your rogue notices the monk dashing off first. Do you want to stop him? Do you want to try to take an action? And at that point, I would resolve with maybe a reflex save or a dexterity check or the rogue says, no, I don't care. Or the rogue says, I'm going to throw a bola at him. You know, at that point, you let the story build a little bit. I think in, in that situation, I might, might even lean toward having the uh, uh, the character that's taken the initiative to do something to maybe roll like a bluff check. Because it's very rare that Ooh. someone's going to make up their mind and go, okay, I'm just going to run over here and do this without having some sort of body language that would indicate that. You know, Even yeah. world-class boxers have a tail. So, okay, you're going to run, but you're not going to just start from zero to 60. So let's roll. You know, If they conceal their intention very well, then maybe that's the role because they're the one taking the action that in a way that seems more fair to me that their role is the deciding factor, not someone else's. So maybe they roll a high bluff check and they're like, okay, yeah, no one saw that coming. You totally just took off. And before anyone can react, you do X. And if they roll poorly, then you compare that to maybe passive uh, insight or passive perception and be like, okay, rogue, wizard, monk. All of you, you're pretty sure this dude's getting ready to do something stupid. You can, you just see that look in his eye that I'm about to do something stupid look is what I call the Matthew look. <laughs> so you have a chance to, <laughs> to, to jump in there and do something. Matthew, would you like to respond? 
this mute thing is really giving giving Michael these 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 little balls he's got. They're they're growing. They're they're <laughs> swelling with metal, and they're developing a brazen texture. I was just thinking, like th- this situation, this bard soul was worth the souls of twenty five kids. They were on a scale. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, level eighteen. Kids. So, may, may, I mean, I was just thinking, like, damn, that that bard has a lot going on for itself. They definitely should have saved the bard. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I was thinking was um, when Caleb was talking about the the magic and and whatever, I was thinking about um, something that happened in history because you know that's what I thought. And uh, when the uh, British were fighting the Zulus, uh, there was a Zulu shaman who used to uh, do like magic spells on the warriors and he told them that it made them impervious to bullets so they would just run at the at the marines and uh and, and die in droves and when they died you know of course the they, the, the shaman would say oh well he didn't believe enough so i i could kind of see a failed magic spell working in that way like say caleb said cast casting protection you don't tell the party that the protection spell didn't go off you just let them all go in assuming they have a plus two or whatever. And maybe that makes them take better actions and their roles will be better. And it doesn't really matter that the spell didn't work. But I don't know if that was off topic or if that was 10 minutes ago because I've been on mute. So it, it was a little little while ago, but I do like that. I, I think that goes back to something we talked about recently with like hit points. I do think that could be a very fun encounter and very cool in situation. But it would require a lot of extra work on the DM side because they're going to have to hide those those roles from everybody. Because like the wizard shouldn't even know if they passed. She'd be like, "I'm going to cast protection." The, the DM would have to handle the knowledge of whether it did or not. Everyone would have to think that it did. Uh, I, I don't know if it's worth the extra work, but I do think that I agree that would be a fun kind of in- interesting situation to be in. I was just going to say, I would, I would love to play that game. Uh, I do not want to DM that game. It's just too much work. Well, I think we've, as we happen to do here on the show, through tangents, we have stumbled onto a non-D&D game. Because Dungeons & Dragons is very specific with how its rules work. And I think if we go too far into making up all these crazy house rule situations... Like Shane said, it's really fun, but it is a fucking nightmare to run from behind the DM screen. This type of situation Matthew brought up sparks to me as a different type of role-playing game. Something where there is less dice rolling from the players and more role-playing from the players. And it is up to the DM to, behind the scenes figure out how things work or not Uh, this might be a game where people don't really know how their magic works but suddenly they can do magic and they're learning or it's a game where someone has just declares i'm a wizard i can do things and i mean let's go back to the made men episode when a certain favorite character decided that he was a wizard uh, it was michael's job to kind of redefine how he took his actions but explained it away as him thinking he was a wizard. In this imaginary game, a player is just going to say, fuck it, I'm a wizard, I can cast magic. And it's up to the GM with these new, as of yet, undefined rules to say, okay, well, yes, you really do have magical powers, but it failed. Or you don't have magical powers, but you think it does. And now I have to do all this math in the background as to whether or not something works. 
I absolutely do want to play that game. I just don't know what it is yet. So maybe we have to uh, make that up. However, I think we have really run this into the, not run this into the ground, but we've certainly had a, a very long conversation about it. The long and short of it is to answer this question, it's all based on context. It's based on the situation. It's based on what the intention of the action is and ultimately what defines the best story. There are a dozen different ways that you could answer this question. They're all correct based on what's happening. There's a a million different ways you could resolve a situation like this with dice. Again, they're all correct based on what is happening at the table. So a very unspecific answer to a very specific question. But I, I think we can all agree that that's pretty much right. So we'll, uh, we'll, as always, throw it back to our audience. If anyone out there has had experience with this type of situation and would like to weigh in on what, what happened and if you thought that was the correct or incorrect uh, resolution, let us know. And then uh, Jason and Scott, you're the two that sort of spurred this conversation on Twitter. If we, uh, if we took too many liberties with what actually happened or too many assumptions and took it off course, let us know um, either through Twitter, email, or on the forum. Maybe you could set up a post of what exactly happened and how it was resolved, and we could have people weigh in. But at this point, we do need to move on. So we're going to move into our second topic tonight, which is kind of the meat of the game or meat of the episode, which is where Caleb and Matthew are going to kind of interview uh, Shane and I about our experience with uh, Fantasy Ground and this uh, D&D 5e Watsy supported virtual tabletop marriage of some sorts. So uh, Caleb, ask away, sir, and Matthew as well. Okay, so right off the bat, uh, why don't you tell us exactly what Fantasy Grounds is, what your experience was, what really happened during your trial environment? Yeah, what he said. <laughs> why don't I? Uh, why don't I start from the the DM setup perspective, and then Michael, you can kind of take over from the player perspective. Sounds good. Yeah. So Fantasy Grounds is a virtual tabletop. So it's similar to Roll20 or Battle Maps or something. I don't know. There's a couple other virtual tabletops out there. It's available through Steam, which is um, pretty unique that, you know, it actually fits through a, a major platform. And, you know, it's uh, similar to any of those, right? It gives you the ability to set up a battle map. Um, you can put your characters in. You can put monsters in. You can track initiative. You can do um, spell effects, drawing, handouts, all that sort of stuff, right? Um, it's got basically all that functionality. And then sort of the advantage of having the D&D licensed content, um, it actually will load all of the PHP material, all of the monster manual material, and the pre-built adventures um, right into its interface. So, you know, right now they have, I think, Horde of the Dragon Queen just came out. And, uh, you know, they had the Lost Minds of Fandelver, which is what we played. And so, you know, setting that up, right, my goal, um, I, I own the starter box, so I already knew the adventure. Um, I'd, I'd run it once, so I was a little bit familiar. But my goal was to spend less than an hour prepping for the session, because that's always my goal. And having no knowledge of Fantasy Grounds, you know, I'd used it um, probably eight years ago once. So I wanted to see, could I pick up the interface? Could I set up the adventure? Could I run it and actually have fun with it, Right. Um, and would it be worth paying the $20 for the adventure and then all the other money for the uh, PHB material? Okay, so let's just clarify here. Fantasy Grounds is its own separate software, correct? Yeah. All right. And right now there is a license between Fantasy Grounds and Wizards of the Coast. 
that official Wizards of the Coast Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition material is uh, able to be utilized within the fantasy grounds program, right? Yep, that's correct. Gotcha. Uh, this isn't uh, the only licensed content either. They they have licensed content for other systems as well. I think like Savage Worlds, Call of Cthulhu, okay. um, some D twenty like OGL stuff. So. Right, but it's it's just a big deal with fifth edition because this is the first and right now only, only. outside company that has the ability to do this. Right. So let's talk about kind of the nitty gritty here real quick. I'm going to guess from your context that to utilize this, you would have to purchase the fantasy grounds software through steam. And then within that program, purchase the official wizards of the coast content. Correct. That's correct. Gotcha. Now you said 20 bucks for the module. Was that just the specific module you ran or was that, all the content of the PHB, the monster manual, that kind of stuff. No. So that's the, the pricing is, uh, is where it gets a bit complicated. So the PHB material is available in a bunch of different chunks, uh, but to buy the PHB would be $50. The adventure itself, the Lost Minds of Fandelver, is I think like $19 and change. And then the monster manual is another $50 on top of that. Um, but you don't need the monster manual to run the adventure. Do you need the player's handbook to run the adventure? This adventure, you really don't, because this is the starter adventure, and it comes with pre-made characters. Um, gotcha. You know, and it, it all fits within the basic rules, so you already have that built in. If you wanted to run Horde of the Dragon Queen, I'm pretty sure you'd want the PHB content. Now, if I have a physical copy of the player's handbook, would I still be able to purchase just the module through fantasy grounds or does the program on the computer for some reason necessitate having to buy the player's handbook through the digital format no you absolutely could buy the buy the adventure and then play it without having the php content loaded in fantasy grounds and this is probably a question for michael you know he played with the character sheet that's fully integrated right so it had all the content built in when he clicked a spell, it brought the spell description up, right? Like it had all the math worked out for him, all that stuff. You know, if he clicked a skill, it, it went to that entry in the PHB. You know, I don't know if that's worth it as a player because I didn't play that way. So I, I would turn that to Michael. Well, we'll get to Michael in a second because I'm in charge right now and I can tell him to do that. Uh, <laughs> although he'll edit all of this out, so it doesn't matter. Now, this might be a question that we don't know the answer to. Let's say you did not purchase the player's handbook content would you not be able to then to click on that integrated material? No. Uh, so in terms of clicking it, it still, it still works. The, it just doesn't lead you anywhere unless you enter it in yourself. So, oh, okay. uh, so one of the guys who played with us set up his character um, sort of independent of me. Um, so he built his character without the licensed content and he had to copy and paste all of the text of each spell into his spell list. Okay. Um, so he got the benefit of it. It was just a lot more work to set up. Gotcha. So what we can gather from that is Fantasy Grounds gives you an integrated character sheet. Uh, you can program in the stats, the numbers, the skills, the abilities, so that it's all clickable as you're playing. Uh, without the purchase of the digital player's handbook, you have to do all that work yourself. Exactly. Basically uh, like Rule 20 does, right? Okay. So it, this at this point, it's a question of whether you want to 
spend the money just to have the system do it for you or whether you want to spend an hour before the game typing everything up yourself. Uh, now, with the purchase of the module, what is that actually giving us? Are we getting the content itself? Are we getting maps? Are we getting tokens? What is that $20 putting in our hands? Yeah, so um, it does give you all of the text of the adventure. So it's it's broken out. Uh, you know, it's not like a PDF, but um, it's broken out into separate subsections, but it gives you all of the text that's in the adventure, you know, the published adventure itself. It gives you um, all of the images are available as handouts. And um, one thing that's really nice about that is they're all scrubbed of the DM material as well. So you've got a player copy and a DM copy, you know, so it doesn't have each room labeled number one, number two, right? Um, so it's a little bit cleaner to play off of. Um, it includes all of the stat entries for the monsters as well as tokens to you know, notate them on the tactical maps. And then I think it gives you some of the loot as well. Um, so I think that adventure has some magic items in it um, at the back, and I think they're in there as well. I, I know they're in there for Horde of the Dragon Queen. I just, you know, we only got um, through kind of the first act of the adventure, so we didn't get to the end. Cool. Very good. So that $20 certainly gives you all the content you would have from buying a physical copy of the module, Uh, but it also does a lot of the work that a DM would have to do to probably make some copies and have things ready to hand out to his or her players. And that was, that was the key for me was setting up each encounter, right? You just, you know, as you, um, you know, as we got to room number two, right, I could quick pull that up quickly, see that that, that room had three goblins and X in it, right? Pull those into the combat tracker, roll initiative, and then we're going, right? All I had to do is put the tokens on the on the map and pull, you know, drag them into the tracker. And, you know, there was no setup time for each encounter, which was pretty convenient. Definitely a good factor to consider there. Shane, you had said that your goal with approaching this was to be fully prepped for the session within an hour. Mm-hmm. Were you successful? Uh, I was. Yeah, I think, right? I mean, Michael, <laughs> did it seem like I knew what I was doing? Uh, from from the standpoint of running the adventure, yes. We did have a few hiccups where we couldn't get the correct tokens uh, up the first time. And then when we were trying to apply damage to them, there was a little bit of hiccup there. But I'm sure that two sessions in, we would have gotten past that. Yeah, it was, it was interface problems were a little bit more challenged, I think, than the adventure itself. Okay, well, let's switch over to Michael now. Um, Michael, you played this game. So you approach this from using a pre-generated character with the integrated character sheet. And I think, if I remember correctly from um, from what Shane was telling me, uh, in this trial, you guys did have full access to all the uh, direct WotC content, the player's handbook and all that stuff, right? Correct. And, and Shane is the one who set all this up. He gets all the credit. He just invited me to be a player, and he worked that out through Fantasy Grounds, and they provided him all the material basically free of charge for him to, to try this out and, and to experience it. So I'm, I'm thankful that he included us in on that by letting me play. And to kind of touch on what Shane said earlier, there's, there's nothing that we did in Fantasy Grounds that you could not do yourself without this package it would just take you however long you wanted to spend to do it yourself. And that could literally be hours of work to set all this up. And and that's what you're paying for. Uh, you're paying a premium for them to do it for you and probably do it better <laughs> than you could have done as far as like the quality, possibly. Yeah. From my side of it, there wasn't a huge difference in, you know, I felt like I, 
I knew what I was doing anyways. Obviously, I'm an experienced player, and that's, that's something I want to touch on later. I kind of had an idea of what all my spells did. I wasn't exactly sure about ranges and some such, but, but we were able to get to that. But I didn't feel like it was intuitive, and I think that's one of the things that Shane touched on earlier, that you know, the integration or the interface is that I would go to where I think I should go, and it was the wrong place. I'm sure two or three sessions in, I would have worked all that out and I would know it. But I think some of the artwork they chose for icons was, was poorly chosen or maybe just the maybe the quality of my screen. They just didn't look right. Uh, but I kept going to places. I'm like, oh, I need to go here. And I would go there and it would not be what I was looking for. What I was looking for was there, was available. It just wasn't where I thought it should be or where I instinctively went to to look for it. So for me, realistically, it was harder to run my character through the program than it would have been with a stack of papers and some spell cards written on the side. Yeah, that was that was one of the comments that uh, one of the other players made, was that it just seemed like everything was one click further away than you thought it would be. Right? It was just one more click, and it just... Over over the length of you know four hours, it was it, it started to feel pretty heavy. Yep, I completely agree with that. Okay, so uh, I think I already know the answer to this question, but uh, what character did you play, Michael? I played a wizard. What? His name was Keebler. He was an elf. Uh, so right there, a a very classic Michael answer. He defaults to playing a wizard, and he defaults to bad jokes whenever possible. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What level were you guys at? I'm not familiar with the module. So yeah, so the all the pregens are level one. Um, it, you know, that, oh, that's that's one other piece of content that comes in the module is the all the pregens. I think there's six that are available, but we had a cleric, a wizard, and a fighter. Okay, cool. So, uh, Michael, as a player, the integrated character sheet is part of Fantasy Grounds. So that is something that that software delivers and makes available. Um, and that is what you were talking about felt like everything was one or two clicks further than what it should have been, or things weren't exactly where they were, right? Correct. Uh, but when you were actually looking at the officially licensed Watsi content, that was just essentially straight out of the player's handbook. There, there, were there any issues in pulling up information or something not reading properly? Uh, no, once once we got to where we were supposed to be, however long or short that took, the information, at least to my knowledge, was was all accurate and correct. And it was, you know, it's easily, uh, you know, you could read it. It told you what you needed to to know. It gave you your numbers. Uh, so once you figured it out, it, it was handy. Again, I'm just not sure if it was any more handy than just having spell cards next to me, whether it be the ones I purchased or just making your own on, on note cards, because that's essentially all it is. It's it's. You know, whether it's a virtual spell card or, or a real one, they've taken the information that you would need to use your character and they've just separated it out in a virtual form. Awesome. So, uh, Matthew, my uh, my favorite podcasting partner here. Uh, why don't you jump on with a couple questions here, buddy? Sure, sure, sure. So I'm not really going to ask about the character sheet because apparently we've learned that it's not as uh, intuitive as we would have liked. There were too many clicks, I'm hearing. So that's a moot point. But uh, Shane, have you played with Roll20 and uh, and the Roll20 input into Google Hangouts? Um, so I haven't played with the uh, the integration of Google Hangouts, but I've played with the Roll20. Okay. You know. And how would you feel it compares to that? That's a good question. So I think Fantasy Grounds has a lot more polish 
you know, Roll20 is, is very driven towards its functionality um, and, and trying to get that as solid as possible. I think Fantasy Grounds is a lot older, right? It's like over 10 years old. So they've worked on what does everything look like? You know, like Michael was saying, there's little icons that are, are built for everything. Every window is wrapped in its own skin. You know, it's also a little bit older. Uh, I had to set up a server, right, that everyone else connected to. So as a DM and client, right, versus, you know, Roll20, you just load it in your browser, which, you know, like I said before, you know, it's cool. You can download it through Steam and run it through Steam and that sort of stuff, right? But I don't know. It's very easy to run through a browser as well, right? I will comment here as someone who doesn't use Steam. Every fucking time I load my computer, that goddamn Steam thing pops up and starts loading shit on my computer, and I, I it drives me crazy. Go away! You're you're not the target market, old man. No, I am not. You can Ow. just call him a luddite, Sean. It's okay. <laughs> okay, so um, oh, okay, because I've heard about this fantasy grounds thing as like this mythical holy grail of gaming on the internet, where you're dragging and dropping, and it's like instant. Uh, populations and i was like wow this this sounds great and then i found out michael did it i was like oh there goes the neighborhood and (laughs) so i'm 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 a little disheartened to hear that everything felt like it was just one extra click away it sounds like the the problem that i have with pdf books that i'm just like i don't want to search for things with the search window because i have to click through all the things that rather just flip through an actual book I, I don't know why. It's, I'm old. I have no idea. Who knows? Well, and, and I wanted to jump in there to talk a little bit about Roll20 because I actually have quite a lot of experience with Roll20. And and part of this is, as, as Shane sort of joked, I'm not the target audience probably. I'm, I'm, I'm just past that. Uh, we did have two other people that were that experienced this with us. One was Devin from Sharkbone Podcast. The other one was Fiddleback uh, Brian from Mad Adventure Society. And I think both of them have plans at some point to talk about their experience. So they might have, you know, they might view it differently than I did, or maybe Shane did. But when we use Roll Twenty, we don't use all the cool features that Fantasy Grounds gives us. Like I don't really use the maps. I don't use the integrated combat trackers. I don't use the tokens because I don't want to or feel that I need to. If someone does a lot of that, I do feel like Fantasy Grounds did that very well. And it looked very polished. And I think if that's the type of game that you want to run, then Fantasy Grounds is a great uh, alternative to Roll20. Because I do think, I, I agree with you, I think it looks a little better. I think Roll20 is more generic by design. They just want to make it an interface where you can get together, virtually chat with one another, roll some dice, and then everything else seems to have been added on separately. You can add maps, you can add tokens, you can add music. So I do think Fantasy Grounds is more polished than that. But it just like Roll20, it does a lot of things that I'm not necessarily interested in. So then I try to separate it and go, okay, I've never played before. This is the first time I'm ever experiencing any role-playing game or maybe Dungeons & Dragons. Is Fantasy Grounds a great experience for the people that have never played before versus getting around a table or getting around roll 20. And I'm not exactly sure I have a great answer for that. I don't know that comparing it to sitting around a table makes sense because obviously if you can sit around a table, you probably would. I I still think fantasy grounds and roll 20 are, are for people who can't do that. So then I'm going to compare them to each other. If I was going to run a game with maps and minis, I think I would choose fantasy ground over roll 20. Yeah, like I, 60 I, like 60 40. I agree there. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, if you're running theater, the mind combat, and you're doing very light on your character sheet and rule books and that sort of stuff, you know, if you've ever run a and d game using Skype or Hangouts and nothing else, you don't need either one. <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend either one, right? But if you wanted to build it out, like, I, I would liken it to, like, Rule 20 is that blank piece of vinyl that has the grid on it that you can draw on with your dry erase marker. And, um, and Fantasy Grounds is more like, having that printer to print out exactly the the map that you're looking for every time. You know, there's a lot more overhead there. It's, you know, not as flexible. Uh, well, it is as flexible, but, you know, it, it just requires a little bit more work to make it function, but it's so much better if that's what you're looking for. Um, so what I'm hearing is Fantasy Grounds is more like the way I used to run every single game that I played as a kid up until me moving out of my parents' house. All right, so how much is this fancy grounds? And Okay, and that that's very interesting. I know, Shane, I want to let him talk about this. The, the pricing structure is probably one of our biggest concerns with the viability of this product. Mm. It is, yeah. It, it's concern number one through five, in my opinion. Because it's not so free. It's very confusing to figure out what it costs you, yeah. Um, so the way the licensing works... It's available as a lifetime license or as a monthly license. So that's, you know, right there, not easy. The GM has a different license from the player. So there's that. There is a, there's a, just a general, like, you know, $40 one-time fee. And then, you know, you can connect to any game and host any game. You could do that also split out as a monthly thing. Then there's the ultimate license, which is basically the GM's license. And with the ultimate, you can host and any number of players can join you um, in your hosted game without a licensed you know just using the very basic free license when we get into the cost is where that gets interesting right um, you know it's a $40 one-time fee if everyone wants to pay it individually it's $150 for that ultimate license and that's the the license that they were kind enough to give me so that I could run it for you know for three players but that's a that's a pretty steep barrier in my opinion um, right up front right before you've even bought any D&D content. Exactly. It wouldn't be if you bought the license and you said, okay, I'm going to run D&D and they gave you the, the three core book content, which was equivalent to the same price. If you go to, you know, Amazon's cheaper, but if you go to your local bookstore, you're going to drop 150 bucks on those books. So if they were to combine those and say 150 bucks license and the core books, I'm in. But there's no way in hell I'm going to pay that, and then on top of it, have to repurchase everything in digital format yep. to get the content out of it. And the other concern I have with that is I'm not sure that you can learn how to play D and D using just the virtual books through Fantasy Grounds. You know, I, we looked at the at the PHB content, and, and um, Fiddleback and I took a look, and like, I mean, it's tough to read. <laughs> like, you know, um, if if anybody is old enough to remember the uh, the old AD&D core rules CD-ROM from like the mid '90s, like you know, it's like or it's like trying to learn D&D from the SRD online, right? It's just it's very tough to get through all that material with no pictures, with no context, just you know, drilled down to the rules and nothing else. It's it's tough, and I don't know that you would want to learn D&D that way. Um, so I think at the very least, you're still buying a physical PHB. So, so what you're saying there is when you purchase the content, uh, the official Wizards of the Coast Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition content for Fantasy Grounds, you are getting all of the rules, but they are really refined down to just 
the rules as a resource. Uh, you're not getting a, a digital copy of the handbook to flip through at your leisure. This is simply just filling in the blanks when I click on how does this spell work? How does this attack work? So all the information is there, but it is, uh, it is broken apart, cut down into very specific chunks of information. Yeah, it's like if you took the you took the text of the PHB, hit copy, and then hit paste, and put in bookmarks. Gotcha. So, you know, the uh, bookmarks make sense, but it's still really kind of a pain in the ass to read that. You know, it's not fun to read, at least. But if you're an experienced player and you just need a resource to answer a quick question, it is right there. Yeah, so that was super convenient. Um, and I was using that without a physical PHB. So when I needed to look stuff up, I was using it within the interface. That was great. Um, it got the job done there. I just, I don't think I would learn how to play D&D from it. And, and I certainly wouldn't, you know, looking at their other licenses, I wouldn't try and learn Savage Worlds that way. Right. So what we're saying here is that the way the official content is delivered in the Fantasy Grounds format is a useful tool for experienced players. It's not necessarily what a brand new player I've never played a game before is going to be able to pick up and learn how to run or play. For the PHB, for sure. Right, and that's I think that's where I'm, I'm keep getting I keep wrapping my head around that is like who is this for? If it's not great for a brand new player, it's more for an experienced player. Experienced players, I'm going to generalize and assume here they probably are comfortable or okay with just doing it themselves anyways. And I think roll 20 is a better option because they already know how to run an encounter. They know how to pull tokens or make maps or, you know, or if they even use them. So it seems like fantasy ground would be a great experience for people who've never played before to try it out. But then the functionality isn't designed to be user friendly for someone who doesn't know what they're doing yet. And I don't know if that's just me bringing my grognard 30 years experience to it, or if, if it just doesn't make sense. I think Matthew has a question here. Let's let him jump in. Uh, my problem is, uh, you know, what Michael was talking about is, is you, you say the functionality doesn't work for the new guy, which, uh, which makes sense. So then you have all these experienced players who don't need all this information, but they still have to buy everything twice. That's my problem with it. It, there should be uh, a discount or something with with the book like uh you know i should be able to type in the uh you know a serial number from my book and then that accesses a sub pricing guide of five dollars to enable the material to be used on the site that that i would be like okay it's going to paypal right now la, 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 i'm getting it yeah, well, I have several of the 13th Age books from Pellegrin Press, and they all come with a free PDF po- copy. When you buy the physical book, that includes a link for a pr- free PDF copy. Oh. There's no reason why Watsy could not do the same thing, except they just choose not to, right. and then include that within Fantasy Runs. That l- literally would be a game changer for me. If they were to say, you have the book, you get all the free content. Like, you know, if, if I want to go out and buy the starter set, I then get the starter set inside Fantasy Grounds for free. I would seriously consider paying the fee for Fantasy Grounds just to do it and experience that. But there's no way I'm going to pay twice. I just, I cannot get around that that hurdle as far as the cost goes. So I, I will say um, the PHB is a little bit of an exception, right? Because that's aimed at players. The MM content and the uh, the adventure content for DMs is a huge time saver, right? Like, 
having all of that stuff in there loaded in, I really, one of the questions that I went in with, you know, that I wanted to answer was if I don't own the physical copy of the adventure, can I run the adventure effectively? The answer is yes. You don't need to buy both. And I think uh, looking at the Horde of the Dragon Queen, which is, you know, actually a full adventure, right? That's priced at $20 as well. That's cheaper than the book. So, you know, I'm, I'm on the fence about the PHB. I think it's a nice to have. I don't think it's required, but I definitely think Horde of the Dragon Queen is a good value, assuming it's the same quality as the Lost Minds of Fandelver. This just brings back to me my uh, my time I spent on the Watsi site. I have an account there, and I got it for the 4E character builder, which I don't know if any of you are familiar with, but oh yes, to oh, yeah. me, it makes it worth playing 4th edition because there was so much fiddly bits that you had to do through the books. Like I have all the books like that. I do, but none of my friends, I never made a character in the real world. I always did it on the builder because it did all the math for you. It was amazing. And I love that. So to me, that's what this feels like a little bit, but I don't know if I can afford to subscribe. It's the same reason I don't have a real 20 like GM account because I don't think I can afford to pay for it. I think it sounds awesome, and I would love to have a Fantasy Grounds account and at least check it out, which, uh, you know, Shane, if you want to just put your login in the screen so no one knows <laughs> that it's there, I'll I'll check it out. But, yeah, I've, I mean, it sounds awesome, but I, 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 don't have the, I don't have that kind of money to throw around at this juncture. Well, and one thing to consider, I know we talked about the pricing structure, and Shane, uh, if you could clarify this for me, if we all decided that we wanted to play this together and you were going to be the DM, we could pool our resources and we could all – help pay for your license that you need as the GM. So what would be like a group cost for everything? If I, we want everything top start off, what, what are we lo- really looking at for a four or five person group? So if you only wanted to run adventures, right, you didn't want to have a DM create his own adventure. Then I would say that to, to make that work, you would need the ultimate license, which is $150. One person would have that they would host as the DM. And then you guys could all connect. Um, using the free basic license. So so in that case, that would actually be cheaper than the DM buying the three books they need, every player buying the player handbook, and the DM then buying the module. But as players, we would not have freely access to anything unless we were actively in that hosted game, correct? That's the problem. Yeah, you couldn't build your character using the PHB unless you were you know, connected to a licensed account that had the PHB, which is another $50, right? So that's now you're up to $200. And then each adventure that you want to download and run is another 20 bucks. It looks like they're all going to be 20 bucks, which is cool. I think that's, that's a super good value 20 bucks. It's the other 200 to get you there. But what you could do is program in all the content you need manually. Yeah, you could do that. So you could spend 50 bucks there. So you could take the, you know, ultimate license and a $20 adventure. You know, if you had a group of, let's say, six players or five players in a DM, right? I mean, that's what, 30 bucks each. It's not cheap, but, you know, if you're going to get a few months of, of entertainment out of it and, you know, then only have to buy one more adventure or the next, you know, adventure module or whatever. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to play for a year or two with that group, that's not terrible. Out of the DMs that I know that are into maps and minis, they spend way more money on maps and minis and props and stuff 
comparative to that anyways, which they probably still would. So it really still wouldn't come out cheaper. Yeah. But as a DM, I know, I, you know, even well before the podcast, I spent a lot of my own money just like I'd go to like a bookstore. I literally have like an old timey, it looks like a skeleton key. Cause I'm like, Oh, that will be a great prop someday. And I bought it. And I, it's somewhere, you know? Yeah. It, so you do that as a DM, you're constantly buying little things just to enhance your game. If this does replace that in some way that it might actually be a value. I just think that initial cost and then add in the PHP and master manuals too much. So maybe if they have like a, a flash sale, 50% off licenses, I might consider it, but I just literally, it's cool. I don't think it's the cost. Well, they do have a monthly subscription as well. So I, I would be unfair if I didn't acknowledge that. So that ultimate license is a $10 monthly fee. So if you wanted to give it a try, you're only in 10 bucks. True. So you could try it out for a month or two. Right. And, and then see if you wanted to, to bump up to the ultimate license. So, okay. Yeah. The problem is the monthly thing is you, you buy it. You're like, all right, monthly license. Can anyone play? No? Cool. $10 down the drain. All right. See you guys later. <laughs> I signed up for Hulu three months ago. I have yet to watch one show on Hulu. So it's actually one of the main channels I use at home. Yeah, that's me too. So let's look at kind of wrapping up this discussion here. I, I think we've hit a lot of really great points. In general, we like the experience, but the interface is a little more complicated than it needs to be. The cost is the biggest barrier into jumping into this thing headfirst. However, the module content is the high point of this experience because the module content splits everything up between players and DMs. It puts all the information the DM needs right at his or her fingertips, uh, and it makes it very easy to facilitate running the game and the price of those modules is very inexpensive mm -hmm. i would agree with all of those so any uh, any final words uh from you two that were part of this uh, experiment here before we move on uh, the only thing i would say is uh, as always i'll throw it to the audience if we have any of our listeners who use it regularly and who really enjoy it that maybe we glossed over some things or there's just some information that maybe our four hours with the system didn't expose please let us know and then Fantasy Grounds, if you're listening, if you want to give me a free license, I will certainly try it again. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. I have people that I want to play with that aren't on this show. Um, I feel like, Matt, I, I really need to load it up for you and let you connect and uh, <laughs> let, you, let you just, you know, hook around a bit. Well, Matt's biggest question with the experience will be what the uh, virtual dice roller will be like. Oh, the dice <laughs> Yeah, what's that based on? Great. The dice are pretty. I don't know how random they are, but they're pretty. <laughs> um, my my question, my quick question before we move on. Sorry, um, you said something about running modules and adventure packs. Does this mean that you have like it's it favors you using a module over making up your own adventure? Was that no, how no. I understood it? Or no, 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 no. So fantasy ground. So I poked around that a bit offline, sort of after the fact, right? Because that's really the point of having the monster manual content. Yeah. Um, and you can, I mean, it has a really robust campaign planning, it, um, encounter planning, combat tracking, all of that stuff, right? So if you wanted to set those up on your own, you could build those, save them, run those at, at whatever point. What's convenient about building or buying a module is that each encounter in there, like the campaign is mapped for you, right? So it, it flows from each encounter and, and sort of gives you all the narration and all that stuff. And then each encounter is preloaded. 
So you have all the details of each encounter already made for you. So in a you know in the Lost Minds of Fandelva, right, the first um, sort of dungeon area is I think twelve areas, right, and then there's two and a half encounters on the way to it. So right there, you've got about you know call it fifteen encounters in just the first session, right? Typing in and finding all those stats and loading those stat blocks and like prepping those and getting them organized, right, and then. You know, in one case, I had to pull one encounter very far forward in the adventure because they, you know, that's how it worked. And then later on, I had to push other areas, you know, around a little bit. Um, it made it super easy to do all that on the fly, which was great. I spent no time worrying about encounters. So, uh, as I said earlier, there is nothing that th- that the modules do that you could not do yourself. It's just they've done it for you, and you're you're paying that premium twenty bucks for what they do once you have the license is absolutely worth it. But again, it's that initial hurdle that I'm concerned about. Yeah. I mean, I spent more than an hour prepping for that that portion of the module uh, when I ran it in person. Um, and I ran it offline, right? Just prepping papers, <laughs> like making sure I had all that stuff, right? It, it took me longer than that. So, um, and, and to say nothing of, you know, okay, stop, let's get out the map, let's draw the map, let's find the minis. Hey, do we have enough goblins, right? Oh, these guys are different goblins, like... All over the place, right? Cool. All right, very cool. So, all right, uh, Shane, once again, thank you so much for including me in that. I, I had a lot of fun, and uh, I think that we need to move on to our final segment for tonight, and that's going to be our background segment, where uh, it was recommended that we try out the Soldier Warlock as a background class combination, which I thought was very interesting. Matthew, were, were you the one that suggested this? Awesome. Well, then I'll let you go first. Okay, see, I suggested it, and I thought of one already, so I don't have to say, mar, 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 mar. All right, so my idea for a soldier or warlock, soldiering warlock, is that his warlock uh, deity, uh, lord or whatever, is in some way the commander of the army in which he's served or serving. So either he's bound to this some demon lord that is literally the general of this army the commander of this army or that is the god that they worship so he's almost like uh, a special forces secret weapon type of thing like like this guy's like oh yeah cthulhu let's go and this guy's like yeah watch this tentacles out of my hand ha 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 so that that's how i saw it i thought that would be a very cool uh thing where you're like bound literally to the the being that embodies the army in which you serve there in that case it's, it's almost like a cleric but what instead of having a, a deity that you worship that grants you powers obviously it's the the patron of your yeah uh, your powers but but in this case they're a physical manifestation like you can see them and interact with them mm-hmm. or it's, it's more closely tied together than the basic ones you see in the php which, which are these outsiders that are far far away and to put it into like a modern spin on it, you imagine like a Marine saluting like nothing, but having a conversation. Yes, sir. Of course not, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> he just walks off and does whatever he's got to do. And it's just like, is he possessed? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, he is. Awesome. All right. Uh, Caleb, Shane, do either of you have uh, have something top of mind? Oh, Absolutely. I am a big fan of the Warlock class, uh, especially the older 3.5 slash Pathfinder version of it. Uh, I've played them quite a bit uh, in my time uh, as a player. I think looking at a soldier background, the easiest thing 
I think would be the player, the PC, the character was a soldier. And then something that he or she experienced during the time serving instigated, sparked off, invested this character with the warlock powers. So maybe he found an artifact as they were raiding a village and somehow that connected him to this outer world patron that started giving him powers. Maybe he was in a desperate fight and was about to die. And as he was passing over, a voice called out to him and said, you can live if you strike this bargain. And he took it. And now he's learning what that bargain actually means. And he's learning how these weird powers pop up and he's not sure what they are. And suddenly he's getting voices like, hey, you need to go do this. Do it. And he's like forced to do it almost. So so that could be a very interesting story there. This uh, You could have a soldier who was tasked to find a specific thing and learn what it is. So he was told, find this artifact, strike this bargain, make this connection. You could play that out as maybe being a bit of an undercover agent. Maybe they picked this guy due to his experience as a battlefield commander to infiltrate this village where they worship this extra planar deity and somehow he uh, struck this bargain in order to learn more about it. I think Matt's idea of kind of being the, the forefront soldier in this patron led army is really awesome. I like that a lot as a slightly different version of it. You could simply be the guy that was trained by the army because you have innate magical powers. You weren't, enough of a magician to become a wizard or a sorcerer, but you learned how to do these couple specific tricks. Uh, the the warlock for me has always been that uh, very epitome of the glass cannon trope. Uh, I can run out in front, I can do a lot of damage, and then I'm going to run away because I'll get killed. So uh, as a soldier with that ability, you could be part of uh, an advanced mission or special forces it could be that the PC had these warlock abilities and was drafted into the army and was forced to join this team because of what he or she can do. Uh, maybe the military is forming a specific task force, a special forces kind of thing to go in somewhere and accomplish something. And they said, hey, you kid, you can do this weird stuff. You're part of the army. Go shoot things. So what about you, Shane? What, what were you thinking as far as a uh, soldier warlock? So I had a couple ideas. Um, so I took a look at like the warlock class, right, and looked at the the three packs. So there's the uh, the tome pact, there's the blade pact, and then there's the chain pact, right? The one that learns rituals and that sort of thing, but it's tied to a physical book. So I was thinking, you know, what do soldiers do that might put a person in contact with one of those books? So I was thinking maybe it was a militia or you know even an army that was fighting against cultists of some sort, right? Of this either great old one or fiend or maybe even fey. And you somehow came into contact with this book, right? And so your pact is linked through the book. You didn't really have a choice in the matter, but hey, you've got all these, you know, cool powers now at the price of, you know, you've got your, <laughs> what your army was sent to fight, right? Is now kind of in your head. So I think that would be kind of a cool challenge, right? To, to work around. The other one is um, looking at the soldier background. You know, 
there's a big emphasis on gambling, right? They get uh, proficiency with a with a gambling tool or whatever. So I was thinking, you know, gamblers are have always a lot of hubris, right? So maybe it's a a pact of the blade warlock who, you know, was on a hot streak and decided, you know what, I'm going to press my luck. Like, how can I get more powerful? And and so made that deal with with some outer being, right? To to kind of strengthen himself. So he continues kind of fighting as a soldier using his blade, but has all he's been invested with all these other powers as well. Yeah, I, I like both of those. Like, actually, I like what everybody's come up with so far. Uh, I think it's um, you just always had to figure out how you're going to work that character into an ongoing story because I I can see each of the characters being like the main character in a story. So you would have to have the other characters around you have some sort of similar background or similar experience so that you could have a, a party, uh, which is it's a challenge for any game that you're playing. When someone comes up with a super interesting, super creative background, how do I fit this in with everybody else? I'm kind of more in line with what Caleb was saying. Like what came to me was uh, The Crow or the movie Spawn or the comic book Spawn, where, again, both of those cases you die and you have the ability to come back with this newfound power to accomplish a certain thing. You know, history and fantasy is rife with uh, people going to war to exotic locations and being changed by what they see and what they experience, whether it's just the horrors of war or in your case, Shane, it's a physical object that, you know, you walk into this little village podunk on the other side of the world. They all worship this uh, red statue or this book and you're like you know, a bunch of hillbilly morons and you walk up and you grab it and then suddenly you're filled with this power and this voice and as you said you're now the thing that you were sent there to fight and you realize it actually exists you know at that point it's almost like lycanthropy you're now the werewolf you're supposed to be hunting werewolves but you're a werewolf do you use that power to try to do what you were sent to do and fight other werewolves or do you try to hide what you've done do you try to cure it Um, i like the idea of a warlock that does not want the power he was given but he needs that power and I'm sure there's other ways to take it, but that's the one that appeals to me most. So, okay, I have this power now. I don't really like what it, where it comes from. I don't like what it does to me, but it's going to allow me to accomplish a certain thing or a certain number of things that have to be accomplished. I have no other way to do it. So I'm just going to make this bargain. I'm going to deal with it. But in the back of my mind, I'm going to get out of this deal. I'm bargaining with the devil, but I think I'm smarter than the devil. And once I've gotten what I need, I'm going to spin around and crawdad the devil in the ass. That is the best tombstone call ever. Okay, I, I, I thought I got there close enough. Okay, so yeah, so I think I'm smarter than the devil, and I'm going to work out in my favor. Probably not going to happen that way, but that's where the hubris comes in. So I like the idea of being a soldier. I'm part of a war. I've gone to a, a foreign country or a foreign land, and I accidentally stumble upon some item, item artifact that imbues me with power. I like the idea of actually dying on the battlefield, and then I'm imbued with that power. It's kind of like a, a harrowed from Deadlands. You've come back from the other side. Again, Crow and Spawn fit that. And I also like the idea of, um, I think Caleb touched on this, like I'm about to die. You know, maybe my, my soldiering unit is surrounded on all sides, and we're going to be overrun. And, you know, I've prayed to my God who has forsaken me. And I'm like, all right, well, I got one last phone call to make it's not god it's the other way maybe he'll get me out of this and it works you know the, the whole thing from conan where he prays to crom to get him out of it at the end he's like if you won't listen to hell with you and so that's what my soldier does he's like well i've tried you you said no so I, this guy's sitting here he's ready to make a deal so i'll make that deal with the devil you know another really good way to uh, put together a campaign and you said this very briefly michael is how 
you bring everybody together. Well, what if everybody's a soldier? So everybody has the soldier background and it's, uh, it, this is the special forces. This is a, a troop of, of soldiers who work together. So sure, everyone's a different class, but everyone comes from the army. Uh, not as much variety, but you could build a really great story out of it. This could be a story actively happening during the war or the battle that's being fought. This could be a story that happens with all these people after they have retired and they're coming back together. So you can still do some pretty fun stuff with that. The more you talked about your idea of that uh, last minute battlefield bargain, the more I like it. Uh, I'm really behind uh, that story, being a big fan specifically of Spawn and the Crow uh, when you brought those up. So I really like that one. Uh, well, very cool. I thank everyone for their contributions. And as, as always, we'll throw it out to the audience. If there's an idea you have for a soldier warlock, something we missed uh, or you think would be a great example, please let us know. Twitter, email, Facebook, or the forum on the website would be our preferred uh, method right now. I think that's going to wrap it up for the show. So uh, for Caleb, Matthew, and Shane, thank you guys so much for your time today. And we will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.